Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Bishop Malcolm Smith. These teachings are recorded live each week and provided not only here on the podcast, but at youtube.com. Simply go to youtube.com and look for Malcolm Smith webinars in the search engine there. We also want to invite you to go to www.malcolmsmith.org. There you will find other teachings by Malcolm, including books, videos, and MP3 downloads. And now, with this week's teaching, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you, everyone. And could I take a minute to thank those of you who send your financial support to make this possible? And of course, to our many partners who give their monthly offering to make this possible. I I was looking at a letter we received just a couple of days ago of a person who spoke of seeking after truth and and the the gospel, life-changing gospel these decades. And a friend told them to tune in to this broadcast and their life was transformed, filled with the joy and the love of God, and they they wrote an ecstatic letter of ha- the the knowing, the inner knowing that they have found the truth. And in in receiving that letter, I thought of those of you whose gifts make it possible. And that's not uh, just a passing word; it really does make it possible. When we gave up charging for this webinar some years ago. Everybody said we were crazy, Um, but you've come through, and I thank you. Those of you that have, you give so that others that have not can listen throughout the world in a multitude of countries. I want to uh, speak around, and we're still looking at this radical grace, and it is radical. In Luke chapter 15, let me read just some of the verses. Luke chapter 15 and verse 6, uh, that's the shepherd that finds the sheep. And he says to his friends and neighbors, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep which was lost. Notice the words very carefully, rejoice with me. Okay, the lost coin um, in verse 9 of the same chapter She called her friends and neighbors together, Rejoice with me, I have found the coin which I had lost. And the same expression, Rejoice with me. And then the major story of the chapter, which we call the prodigal son, more like the lost son. And if you go down, um, well, really, you see that this is where this takes off because you, you have rejoicing Uh, from really from verse 22 on when the father embraces his prodigal puts a ring on his fingers shoes on his feet and puts his own best robe around him and they kill the fattened calf and they eat and they celebrate and he announces this son of mine was dead has come to life was lost and they began to celebrate And then when the elder brothers coming over the fields, in verse 25, it says, as he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Uh, Rejoice, rejoice. And that's what made this elder brother so angry. And then at the very end, in verse 32, the father says, we had to. And that's a, a weak translation of the Greek word there. And some of your earlier translations, King James and so on, are correct when they say it was necessary to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. It's something, we did mention it a few weeks ago, but it was in rapid passing and you might have missed it that the word grace, and we have been emphasizing grace as the gift, grace as the favor, grace as the action, the personal energy of the Holy Spirit bringing 
the extreme gift of Jesus the Son from the heart to the Father. Grace, 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 grace upon grace. But there is another meaning. Well, it's hardly another. Um, it springs out of all of that. But the word grace in the original language of the Bible, the word grace comes from or finds its root in another word, which is joy. And you could say one of the most basic meanings of the word grace is joy. And really, you, you don't have to think very much before you realize that. That why, why is God the God of grace, God the giver of all graces? It's because he delights, his love delights to give us. Now this I have mentioned more than once, that the idea of grace is a gift. When a person truly gives, their reward is to see the, the look of delight on the face of the recipient of their gift. And you can carry that to limitlessness in God, that his love delights, dare I say, that he waits with bated breath to see the laughter in your heart and the joy on your face. For he is giving all that he gives out of joy. He desires you, he longs for you, and with great joy, he gives to you. Um, and, and what he gives, or shall I say who he gives, his only begotten son. And that son is the essence of the good news. And you remember the angels at his birth announced that they brought the tidings or the good news of a great joy. Yeah, the fact that God had joined the human race. He had become our next-door neighbor. He had moved into our ghetto. He'd become as one of us, yet without sin. He himself is the great joy. Can, can you ever really get over it? Can you yawn and say, what's next? No, you never get over it. That God in his extreme joy, has given to us his only begotten Son, and that gift to us is joy. We, we, we stand with mouths open, eyes bugging. Can we believe it that God himself, God the Son, has come and called us his brothers and sisters? And the gift, this that we've been speaking of, this personal gift, this gift who is Jesus, this gift who is the Holy Spirit ever coming into our lives and applying that gift, that gift is always joy. That gift um, brings continual joy. We are persons known for our joy. And that joy is the strength, the power of God. Do you remember ne Nehemiah 8? The joy of the Lord is your strength. The kindness of God excites joy within us, fills our life, infects our life with joy. So when I speak of grace in terms of joy, I am speaking of the essence of the word. And, and it does as well to, to think about it. And, and you might feel that is radical to speak of God in such extreme terms of joy. But even as far back as Zephaniah in the Old Testament, do you remember that in chapter 3 verse 17? It says, the Lord your God is in your midst and he's a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. And some translations, and I believe they're right on, says that he exalts over us with singing. His, his joy expresses itself in melody and song. He, 
He exalts over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. As, as a crooning mother rocks her baby in love into rest and safety and peace. So it goes on to say, he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. This is your God. I, I know I know that religion hates this idea of God, hates it. Um, that's why religion would tend to call what we're talking about radical grace, as if we're radicalized Christians. No, we, we, dare, we dare to hear what the scripture says. And specifically, we dare to hear what Jesus, who is the revelation of God, he is God from God, to tell us what God is truly like. And we dare, however much that confuses our mind sometimes, we dare to hear what he's saying. And of course, this, Luke chapter 15, is... Maybe you've never read it like this. It, it's got, it's not a sentimental chapter, you know, where we tie yellow ribbons on the old oak tree and wait for the lost boy to come. Oh, come on, come on, come on. Read the scripture. This is war. Yes, you heard me. Luke chapter 15 is a declaration of war. Luke 15 is spiritual warfare against not only sin and Satan and hopelessness and shame and abandonment and rejection, but it is spiritual warfare against religion because the parables uh, were told because of the snarling, complaining and anger of the religious leaders in the very first verses of Luke 15. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so, verse 3 says, And so, because of that, he told them these parables. This is when Jesus declared war on religion and the prince of lies and darkness that was energizing that religion. And he put a chasm between what he was saying and what religion said. And he told these parables, and as you noted, each parable... They're tied together with the phrase, rejoice with me. I have found my sheep, I found my coin. And tied into the last one, which shows uh, an extreme celebration of dancing and music and rejoicing, finishing with the words, it is necessary. We just have to celebrate. And so... The parables reflect what Jesus was doing. He was seated, eating, and welcoming tax collectors and sinners. And I might say, and I believe you know this, but I'll quickly say it, that the tax collectors were persons who had walked away, very deliberately walked away from the God of covenant love, the the. Hebrew people of this time understood that they'd walked out on him they'd closed the door behind them they wanted no more to do with him they sold themselves to the Roman oppressors to become tax collectors from their own people and, and so they separated themselves from all decency, morality brotherhood from their own people, their own neighbors their own family they separated away into their own wilderness to become rich and possess and become little gods 
And in so doing, they walked away and separated from their own selves. They were not only looked upon by society as sinners, not only had they sinned in the biblical sense of the word as as having completely lost contact with the blueprint of their own existence, but, but they were lost to themselves, a confused, hopeless, persons in despair, despised, of course, by all their neighbors, Um, the Pharisees especially read out their names in the synagogue every Sabbath to say that if they confessed their sins till the day they died they would not even get halfway through and so they were damned in hell forever (sighs) Jesus sat with them and ate with them in a very public place And of course, eating in those days was to declare solidarity with a person. It was, in fact, to have a covenant of friendship. It meant, I stand with you. And what they do to you, they do to me. And all that I have, I give to you. It's called table fellowship, eating bread with another. Jesus sat and ate in a public way with the scum of the earth with those who were the outcasts of society, those who believed that God could never look at them. Jesus sat and told stories. And in the stories, the representation of God, the shepherd, the woman, the father, each is said to rejoice and delight and celebrate these persons. For the tax collectors saw themselves in the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. This is, it's necessary. It reflects the heart of God. This is who he is. This is the ground of the gospel. You you understand me? The will, the pleasure, the longing, desire from before time was of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is that you and I would sit down in hilarious fellowship with Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Please, would you get beyond this, I'll have to say it, unbiblical idea that the gospel begins and ends with sins being forgiven and somehow securing your eternal destiny. That has its place. But that's not the gospel. The gospel, the word means good news, merry news, news of joy. And, And that joy is, yes, of course your sins have to be dealt with. And they have been dealt with, period, by the blood of Jesus Christ. But the news is that having dealt with your sin, he brings you to live a life inside the joy of the Father over you, to rejoice in and with Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Your life, you are... You are destined, you were created for such joy. This is where joy is. Please hear me. I'm not a ranting tent preacher. You know what I mean by that? I'm not just saying words that all preachers are supposed to say. I mean it. Your joy will never come in getting those things that you think will bring you joy. We really should have found that out by now. But let me just say it. Joy is not in getting the things or the position, not in going to the geography or place. That's not where joy is. I lost a ring. Well, actually it was this ring, my wedding ring. And it was lost over a period of about four months. That's a long time. But you know how it is when something very precious to you has been lost. You, you know, it, you do silly things. You go and look in the same place that you've already looked in five times. You know what I mean? 
You go and you turn out that drawer for the tenth time, and and you go. You're always looking, and you turn the corner, and and you. It could have been here. I was walking here. I remember, and, and yeah, that that constant search for something precious. Well, just I, I found this ring just uh, last week, after four months. But just before that, I was sitting on my porch. And way out there in the grass, I saw something shining. It, it was in the middle of the night, and so it was possibly a moonbeam had caught this that was shining, and and it shone in the sliver of moonlight, or it could have been a, a remote um, street light that fell upon it. Whatever it was, there. Out in the darkness, there was this shining, and at times it it almost looked as if there was a ruby, precious stone that shone a deep red glow, and not that that's in my ring, but I'd been looking for rings for four months, and so now as I looked out, and it, it seemed to beckon me. There was my ring. I, and if it wasn't my ring, it was something awfully much like it. And, and so, I went out into the darkness, and and in in our particular place, that that can be a little bit dangerous in the deep darkness. But I was drawn, drawn toward and, and through the ups and downs and ditches, and I, I went toward that shining thing. Do you know when I got right up close? It was a torn piece of candy wrapper from a Twix bar, you know, and that's got gold in it and there's red, and, and the, the, it'd been caught in, as I say, the moonlight or something, and, and, and what a letdown! And I thought immediately of this longing for joy, this longing for fulfillment, this this sense of. To, to find one's place in life and, and there comes a, a shining across the darkness and he says a beckoning this is it this is it you got it now and off people go into all bits and pieces of cults and they, they, they'll go in every self-help sort of stuff and new age and they go wandering and then when you finally get there it's a piece of candy paper that's been shining in the... You see what I mean? Joy! Joy is not in that relationship. Joy is not to be found in the acclaim of others. I could keep going. It's not. It's all torn up candy paper that glows in the darkness sometimes. The fact is that joy, and I'm not speaking of happiness. Happiness is a passing thing. You have it for a few minutes, few hours at the most, and then it's gone and you're left with the pain of wanting it back. No, joy can never go. Joy is there forever. And the goal of the gospel, this is, this is the good news, that you go to heaven when you die, but that heaven comes to you now while you're living. And in that you find this joy, this content, this peace that passes human comprehension. You see, it's in discovering the God who joys over us, the God who laughs for joy that he has you. It's in discovering him I discover myself. Think about that. Those tax collectors were discovering who they truly were. They were not their highest thoughts of themselves any more than they were the lowest thoughts of themselves. They were not what the whole village said they were. They certainly were not what the Pharisees said they were. They were... Huh. They were... They were who they were in the face of Jesus. Those tax collectors discovered their identity in Jesus. The fact that he sat with them as the perfect word, the perfect telling of who the Father really is. And he looked upon them with love and he brought the message of a laughing Father. 
He says, I love you, I delight over you, I exalt over you with singing. You see, when Jesus sat with these tax collectors, he not only came to their level, but in the same action brought them up to his level. That, that was what enraged religion. That, that Jesus, the one who claimed to be Messiah, the voice of God, would sit with these people, but in sitting with them then made them his friends and those that he had entered into a covenant relationship with to say that if you're ashamed, I bear your shame. If you are broken, I'll get inside your brokenness. I'll bring you to sit where I sit. You see, this is grace. This is sheer gift. There's, you can't intellectualize this and give me logical reasons for this. God comes and sits with the lowest scum of the gutter to exalt them to be his friends, to be his brothers and sisters. This is grace. What was Jesus doing just by sitting with them? He was placing worth upon them. He was placing significance. No one knew what to do with it. Even the simple folk, the fishermen, the shepherds of the Galilee, they didn't know what to do with this. Because if Jesus sat with tax collectors, then maybe, perhaps, tax collectors were not quite what we thought they were. Jesus bestowed worth. He bestowed significance and importance upon these persons. Love does that. Love does that. And he did it publicly. He didn't sneak them into a back room and saying, you know, guys, I really, I come with a message of love for you, uh, but, uh, you know, you know uh, how people feel about this, so, so we do this in a back room. No, he did it right out in public so that everybody saw. And in the parable that reflected what was going on here, the father at the end there said, it was necessary that we have this public feast to celebrate the return of this lost one. It was necessary. Get down inside that word, necessary. What does the, the word necessary means? An urgent response to a situation. That is, you, you see an accident and you stop your car and you go to, to see if there's anything you can do and you didn't think about it. You stopped the car, you were out of the car and run into the accident really before you knew what you were doing because it, it, it was an urgent response to a situation that demanded the least you could do is go and see if you could do something. That's necessary. It's necessary. Another way you could say necessary means it's the only right. It's the only fitting and proper action to take. It was necessary. We had to do it. There was nothing else to do in the nature of the case. Or we would say necessary. It must be done. It's necessary. You know. When, when all the lights go out at night, the, the electricians come in the middle of the night to fix the wires. Well, that's necessary. They don't say, look, I've got other stuff to do tonight. I'll be around in a couple of days. No, you're here tonight while the rain is still pouring down and the winds are blowing. It's necessary that we connect. It's necessary. It's the only logical thing to do. Jesus sat down with tax collectors. He told stories of lost sheep that were so precious to the shepherd that it was necessary for him to go into the wilderness to find it. A coin that was of such value to the woman, it was necessary that she moved the whole house to find it. And a father to whom his son was so precious that it was necessary that before the whole village and society he embraced him and declared him his son and put on a village-wide feast. It was necessary to make his laughter and his delighting public. 
That, that's it. Jesus sat down with sinners in order to make it very plain. Could I make it any plainer? This is what God is like. God wants every human being. God embraces all kinds and types of persons. No one is too low because a tax collector in the eyes of the New Testament is just below the bottom. But Jesus went below the bottom. He went into the drain of the sewer to find the tax collector. Necessary, he said. It's necessary I do this. It's it's necessary to sit at a feast with these fellows. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus was not condemned for calling these chaps to a prayer meeting. He didn't sit down and pass out Bibles and say, let's have a Bible study. He had a feast with them. And there was laughter. And there was camaraderie. It, it, it's a, a picture of persons who are interacting with each other at a deep level. A feast, and as I've said in those days, that meant a covenant commitment one to another. And he did it in public. Huh. It was necessary, but... Yeah, I know, you, you, you really did think he should have called a prayer meeting, but he didn't. He, want, he introduced these chaps to joy. He introduced them to celebration as if to say, I found you. You are the ones, along with everybody else, but you are the ones I came for. So let's sit and celebrate together. So this action of Jesus and these parables that explain it, they're not a footnote. This isn't just a P.S. to the gospel that Jesus did all the fabulous stuff he did in all P.S. You know, he, he sat down and he had a meals with tax collectors and dubious characters. No, this is fundamental. You'll not understand the heart of the Father till you understand this. You will always be cowering away, not really sure where you will end up with the Father until you see what Jesus is doing here. He's making a fundamental statement. This is the divine must of Jesus, who is the word of explaining who the Father really is. It's vital to knowing what God is like. When God the Father looks at you, what does he think? That's the point, you see. That's the point. What does he think? What does he think? He thinks, kill the fatted calf. Let us eat. Let us be merry. Bring on the bands. Let us dance for joy. That's what he thinks when he thinks of you. And I don't care what the church might think of you, and I don't care what your neighbors might think of you. That's what the Father thinks of you. And he's telling us that in this chapter. This is what it's about. I said, to eat with someone in those days was to stand in solidarity with them. God stands in solidarity with us, declaring to us, and he's not ashamed to say it before the entire world, that he loves you, calls you his son, his daughter, has unlimitedly, unconditionally accepted you, declares you to be the familiar of the Holy Trinity, in fact, he has gone further and adopted you, brought you in by deliberate action to be son, daughter in the family of the father. This is what it's about. Have you heard the gospel before? See, the gospel is not a letter of pardon. You know what I mean? Um, it, it's not that you, you get this what? Well, a letter of pardon, not that I've ever had one, but um, it's just a, a simple statement. It, it, it's a cold um, statement that you're, you're pardoned of whatever it was that you were accused of. But of course, that doesn't change you. It's just simply 
a letter that says you should be accepted in society, but you're not changed. Letter of pardon doesn't do that. God doesn't just send us a letter of pardon. Nor, nor is it condescending that, you know, we grovel in the dirt and we say, holy, 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 I'm no good, I'm unworthy. I, I don't know how many persons this last weekend, that was their idea of going to church to get as low and as down as they could and because they believe God looks down from a holy height to us worms that wriggle in the dirt. And all we, we can make him feel good if we keep on saying we're worms and no good. No, 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 that's not, no, no. Nor, incidentally, Jesus sitting with these people was not condoning what they did or were. Because God deals at another level than mere good or bad. He doesn't grade us. Which means he doesn't label us. Jesus didn't put up a sign and say, I'm sitting with tax collectors. These were persons to him. He looked beyond all their labels, beyond all their behavior, beyond all their masks and their walls that tried to hide their pain. And he loved them. Just as you are, you are loved. He didn't sit with them like this because they were right with God and then because by everything that we ever know they couldn't have been more wrong. They were so wrong that to them there was no way back. They had gone through a door and if they'd bothered to look around after they went through it, it disappeared because there was no way back. The only way back was that God came through that door to where they were and sat with them and loved them and joined himself to them that he himself, having become as and where they were, would carry them to become one with him, be where he is and enjoy his fellowship with the Father. He certainly didn't sit there because sin doesn't matter. In fact, his sitting there was the guarantee that he, on the cross, would carry the sin of the world as well as the sin of these tax collectors. No, he sat there as a fundamental divine must to announce to us in scandalous language that he is love and he draws us to himself and to overcome everything that would separate us from him. This is the joy. Do you remember in Hebrews it says, for the joy that was set before him, he despised the shame of the cross and he went, that is, Jesus could endure the sufferings of the cross because of the joy of the other side of it, which would be, he's found you, and he's carried you to the Father. And so it says, rejoice with me. Which in effect he was saying to the tax collectors, rejoice with me. What does that mean? Rejoice with me means believe in his joy. You see, can, can you... <laughs> can I really believe that God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit look now at me and they are grinning from ear to ear with sheer delight? Come on, can you accept that? That right now, as we're talking together, that God the Father looks at you with uncontained pleasure. He loves you. He delights in you. He exalts over you with singing. At other times, He rejoices with shouts of gladness over you. 
to rejoice with me. See, it's not that you rejoice because you're feeling good. It is God the Father is saying, I am rejoicing. Jesus, God the Son, is saying, I am rejoicing. And the Holy Spirit comes to you with his fruit of joy. If you will rejoice with God, it's because you believe. You believe that he loves you to the extent and has graced you to the extent that he rejoices over you. You see, the person who has seen this grace of God that beggars description, that person has become wonderfully, wonderfully infected with divine laughter. I, I begin to laugh with God as he laughs for joy over me. I begin to have his joy clothe every one of my thoughts so that I might think his thoughts of joy concerning me. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I dare you to see that this is how he thinks of you. This is how he now feels of you. This is what he longs for you. He joys, he rejoices, and he calls you to sit down and celebrate with him his grace of rejoicing love. You see, when that prodigal son came home, well, that was the father's dream fulfilled. You see, this is what many have problems with. The father had never seen the son as separated away from him. The father had never rejected the son. I, I say that on the authority of how the father received him home. <laughs> I, I know, you see, I know there are persons in my audience and I can speak with authority here because way back, way back in my long and ancient life, I, I studied the same catechisms that you might have studied. And, and the image that was given to you is that God did not like you. That God was so holy he couldn't look at you. He was disgusted with you. He was repulsed by you. And the only attitude and longing he had concerning you was that his extreme anger and wrath would be satisfied. And I can see the blood dripping from his fangs as he says it. Let me get my hands on you and I'll tear you limb from limb for all eternity and roast you in my wrath. I've heard that said in more than one sermon. Jesus is depicting God, the Father, as never once rejecting us, never abandoning us from his thoughts, but longing for us, joy in its longing, joy in its extreme desire. Oh, when the Son came home, he said... He said he was separated. He said he was no longer worthy to be called his father's son. He said that he, he had sinned against heaven and was groveling before his father and the best he could ever hope for was an arm's length employee relationship where he lived off in the field somewhere and when he was needed as a hired servant he would come home. That's the best he could hope for. That's what he saw. But the father didn't say that, nor actually did the father excite to what the son was saying. He, he comes right in and, and his counter statement was this son of mine. Oh yeah, he said he was lost as a precious, precious item is lost and I look for him over and over again and I pursue him down the same paths. Yes, but he's found. 
and found to the point where I hug him till I nearly break his ribs and I kiss him all over and I give him my clothes. Oh, the, the father didn't hold the same opinion of the son that the son had of himself. I'm sorry. So many persons thought they were worshipping God when they said, I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy, I'm no good. And the father keeps saying, no, no, you're my son. I delight in you. I long for you, you see. The father in that parable is never interested in what the son is not. Do you hear what I'm saying? The father is not interested in what you say you're not. He's not interested. He dealt with that in Jesus Christ once and for all. And so as I say, when the son came home and had this litany of everything he was not, unworthy and no good, and the father just cuts across that with, with a totally different statement, and within seconds of the son saying that the father is robing him and wringing him and shooing him and declaring his place at the feast as his honored son. And then when the elder brother came and he gives the long statement of all the corruption and rottenness of this son and how he ought to be punished, the father totally ignores him. He does not speak to it except to say it's necessary that we celebrate love that has been waiting for this son's return must celebrate huh isn't that amazing and the father was not ashamed as I said a few minutes ago Jesus didn't meet with these tax collectors in a back room by private arrangement it was in a very public place where his worst enemies could see him do it the father met his son out on the open road where anyone and everyone could see. He was not ashamed of him. Do you understand me? Father and Son and Holy Spirit, not ashamed of you. Said, look, if you doubt me, read Hebrews chapter 2. It says, Jesus was not ashamed to be called our brother. In fact, the father is described as actually sharing. <laughs> he not only gave him his signet ring. Do you know a signet ring? It's when you, it's got the initials of the person in it or the family insignia and, and it's stamped into wax and sort of your credit card, only a lot more than that actually. The father gave him his ring. He said, go into town. Show them the ring that says, you're my son. And then the father gave him his own best robe. He shared his clothes with him. Everybody knew they were his father's clothes. Not ashamed. Okay, are you ready for this one? The father rejoicing, singing, having a band and dancing over the returned son was the judgment of God upon all of the rebellion and far country and sin and wasted life of the son. What paganism has gotten into the church to think of God's judgment as destroying the sinner. Where did you get that from? Except, of course, that's what the Pharisees believed and Jesus said they got their doctrine from Satan. Because that's what Satan would love to do to each one of us. What is God's judgment? It's illustrated. How did the Father, how did the Father make a public statement of judgment against the whole life of the son in the far country. He flung his arms around him and he kissed him and they rejoiced and they danced. That is, the father judged that as gone and over and my son home. Or the other word that goes with it, justice. And the word justice especially in Old Testament rootage means to make everything right. 
to make everything as it should be, to make everything according to the blueprint. Look, what does the Bible say? When the Holy Spirit is come, he shall convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Boy, I've heard sermons on that. But that's only half the verse. Come on, let's preach the rest of the verse. Jesus then enumerates and says of sin, because they believe not on me. Because he's dealt with sin, there's only one sin left, and that's to refuse the answer to sin. Of righteousness, because I go to the Father. Not because you sweat over trying to keep a list of rules, but because I take you to -to face-to-face fellowship with the Father. And of judgment. Boy, I've heard preachers hang people over hell with that verse. When the Holy Spirit is come, he shall convince the world of judgment. But keep reading. What does it say? Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Not you, my friend. You have been embraced in the joy of the triune God who came to find you in Jesus. And if God the Father, Son, and Spirit puts the arms around you and embraces you and says, forgiven, accept it. What does that do except say that Satan is the wrong? He's the destroyer. The judgment falls upon him. Go back to the Garden of Eden. God didn't judge Adam and Eve, but it does say he judged and cursed the serpent. Oh, how wrong we've got it. How wrong we've got it. That you, some of you dear people, would cringe in terror of judgment when all was taken, when the Father put his arms around you and in so doing announced the judgment upon the Satan, the liar, the destroyer, the one who would tyrannize you. His justice in your life is that through Jesus Christ he makes all things right. Of course, the son in this story has to repent. In fact, that is in all of them. There's there's joy over one sinner who repents. Over one sinner who repents. And, And I guess... The son going into the feast, accepting his father's evaluation of him, would be repentance. Because you see, the word repent, there again, has been stolen by wickedness. And I have to say that because repentance has come to mean that I grovel. I I declare myself unwanted, unworthy. I place myself outside uh, of the gates of God. And think that that makes God happy. And, and I beat myself and say what a wicked, terrible person I am. And we think that makes God happy. And they call it repentance. When I was a youth, some of us boys envied the girls. Because when they went forward at the end of a sermon, the girls could cry very easily, but the boys couldn't. And so they thought the girls were repenting more than the boys were. So stupid, isn't it? What is repentance? As you've heard me say, it's a word that we should never have translated unless we can get another word for it. But the word in the Greek is metanoia. You might as well stick with that until you find a better word. Because repentance has nothing whatsoever to do with that word. Forget it. Forget it. Bury it. Flush it down the toilet. It's no use. Metanoia means a radical change of my heart mind. At my very core being, I begin to think of God as God really is. And therefore to think of God's attitude to me as it really is revealed in Jesus. And therefore to think of myself as the Father thinks of me. Metanoia. A radical heart-mind change. To think of God and myself as God does. Or... In the light of what we're saying, this grace of God that comes to us, which is the joy of God released upon us, repentance 
is daring to believe in the joy of God over us. Repentance is believing that he has so finally and utterly dealt with your sin in Jesus that there's no more discussion. You can join him in his laughter and joy over you and snuggle down into that love and accept your acceptance, accept your belovedness. And what's faith? Faith is trusting his joy. If if the Father joys over you, <laughs> then I'm going to laugh with him. I'm going to trust his love. I'm going to believe in what Jesus has accomplished. I'm going to set my sail to the Holy Spirit's direction. And we're going to rejoice together. You see, it's the goodness of God, says Romans 2, the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Not the terror. Well, why, why do I say this? Why do I get so excited about it? We, we are all infested at some time or another with the Pharisee parasite. Pharisee mindset is a safe zone for many people. They somehow feel good if they can look down on somebody else. For many people, their idea of heaven is that everybody they don't like is in hell. They couldn't imagine heaven without thinking of hell. Pharisee. And it's only when you look at this that we've been looking at that you realize how uneasy we are around this. Surely God has got to frown at us. Surely he's got to... I mean, he should be upset, shouldn't he? He should take us to the woodshed. Oh, some preachers love to preach on that. Well, you see, the love of God, his unrelenting love, that love, that's what changes us. Law doesn't change us. Threats don't change us. We're just more careful that we're not caught. But love, love transforms us. And when that love comes to us in the person and energy of the Holy Spirit bringing the almighty power of the finished work of Jesus with the joy of the Father backing it all up, that revelation changes me changes me and I realize who I am and I look at you and realize you too are a person a broken person the same as I and a, and a person struggling the same as I but God's love lays hold upon us and he's bringing us to live our lives in conformity with Jesus I discover myself in the face of Jesus, but I also discover you in the face of Jesus. And I have a foundation for loving you as I am loved. You see, the first mention of anger, rage, in these parables of Luke 15 is when the elder brother showed up. And when he heard the song and dancing and acceptance of the son it says he was angry because in his world only those he deemed as good could have acceptance and everybody else had to be punished and now his world had collapsed before the grace of the father the love of the father expressed in the joy of the celebration and if you're hearing what I'm saying, there will be some listening and your little world that you've called gospel will collapse. Oh, blessed collapse for the Holy Spirit begins to build the real thing then. 
It's based on the love of the Father, the grace that comes to us in Jesus. Well, there it is. The grace of God is the joy of the Father expressed perfectly in and through Jesus and is brought in power into our lives by the Holy Spirit that wherever we find ourselves there at our heart we joy and we joy for it is grace upon grace and we are upheld and we are strengthened we rise above anxiety fear dwindles away beneath us as we look into Father's face and we see his joy and we know the embrace of his love and he says fear not for I am with you that's the gospel my friend and now the blessing of God who is almighty love the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit his blessing his grace his joy fill you as you listen to this and attend your way and strengthen you from your deepest in to your most extreme out that all your life may be spent in this joy which is his joy in you and his peace that passes human comprehension so I bless you and that is the way it is